we're going to attempt to answer the question, just how will we know from an economic standpoint if Trump is actually making America great again? It's Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington, and I'm coming to you by myself again today because Dan and Kate were unable to join us. But fortunately, I have two esteemed colleagues with me today. Uh, Here in D.C. is Vince Goley, a fellow editor who's been covering the U.S. economy for two decades. And uh, up in New York, we have Carl Riccadonna, who's chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here, Scott. Now, uh, often on Benchmark, we dig up unusual facts or indicators to make a broader point about trends in economies around the world. Today, we're going back to basics. It's our first show since Donald Trump took office as the 45th president of the United States. And since Benchmark is all about the economy and Trump has pledged to make America great again, we're going to attempt to answer the question, just how will we know from an economic standpoint if Trump is actually making America great again? Now, the president has dismissed some traditional measures of the U.S. economy, such as the main unemployment rate. He called that measure phony or fictional because he thinks it overestimates strength in the labor market. So we're going to run down some other economic indicators today. These are a bit more out of the mainstream, maybe a bit down in the weeds, but we think they'll show a good sense of the degree of the success of the Trump administration during the next four years. Uh, So obviously we're not going to talk about unemployment or GDP, and instead we'll give you first two ways of looking at the labor market, then two ways of looking at the health of corporate America and small businesses, and also one gauge of whether Trump is fulfilling his pledge to bring factory jobs back to the US. So uh, are you ready, guys? Ready. Let's go. All right. So without further ado, here are the first two. The first is called prime age labor force participation. Now, translate into English from econo speak, we can say that is people in the peak of their working years who have a job or are looking for one. And the second one would be full-time workers as a percentage of the labor force. That refers to people who have a full-time job as a share of everybody who has a job or is looking for work. Uh, Vince, let me go to you first. Why are these good gauges of both the economy and for Trump's goals? Well, Scott, um, probably in the simplest terms, I'd say that it boils down to potential. Um, People in this 25 to 54 age bracket working a full week, have the best potential to gain work experience, um, secure better benefit packages like health care and 401k plans that allow them to prepare for retirement. And perhaps most importantly, they have greater earnings potential. And they have the ability to grow their earnings, earn more, which contrasts with, uh, say, teenagers who are more likely to work for minimum wage. And the reason this is important is that um, these are the folks who are most likely to spend, and they'll probably spend big, whether it's buying a new car or house or what have you. Um, The more potential to earn a good living will allow them to spend, and that in turn boosts the economy and encourages more hiring and more spending, and you get this sort of virtual circle for the economy. 
Carl, what's been going on with prime age labor force participation in recent years, and, and why has it gotten criticism from Trump and his team? Well, the uh, participation rate goes through uh, longer-term structural uh, fluctuations. Uh, so it climbed uh, from the uh, late 1950s up until about 2000. Uh, this was uh, partly a phenomenon of the baby boomers coming through the system, uh, also uh, women entering the workforce in uh, increasingly large uh, uh, proportions. Uh, about uh, the time of uh, 2000, uh, the participation rate uh, peaked and began to decline. Uh, at the time of the 2007 to 2009 recession, the Great Recession, uh, it actually uh, accelerated uh, the pace of decline. Uh, and so the question is, uh, how much of this uh, is really due to long-term structural trends in the economy? If we think of the baby boomers going through the system like that uh, a python that swallowed a, a, an egg or uh, some large objects. So uh, part of that is uh, just uh, an inevitable trend. Uh, but the question is, uh, this acceleration uh, since the end of the Great Recession, and a lot of economists are wringing their hands saying there's no way to forecast uh, labor participation uh, and whatnot. Uh, and I think that if we take a step back and take a very straightforward, common-sense approach, uh, there is a way uh, to actually uh, model that out, at least to some degree. Uh, and we can do that by looking at uh, economic conditions or uh, getting uh, back to the uh, 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 prior uh, uh, comment, uh, the uh, prospects of earning a good living, uh, the health of the economy and, and strength of the economy uh, impacts how much workers are uh, uh, moving off of the sidelines and into the economy. So over the past uh, seven, uh, ten years, uh, economic conditions have not been great. Wage stagnation has been a big problem, and uh, job prospects have uh, not been uh, particularly strong. Uh, and this means that uh, a lot of would-be workers have uh, remained on the sidelines, uh, and that has uh, taken a uh, toll on participation. Now, uh, what Janet Yellen, chair of the Federal Reserve, and uh, some other economists uh, also on the uh, Open Markets Committee uh, want to do uh, is uh, explore the potential of pursuing a uh, high-pressure economy, uh, as she terms it, uh, or as New York Fed President Bill Dudley mentions, uh, letting the economy run a bit hot. Uh, and what they mean by this is uh, by uh, letting the economy exceed its growth rate and being slow to uh, push back with uh, monetary policy or interest rate uh, policy, uh, they can actually uh, lead to a pickup in inflation and wage pressures, uh, and that will coax folks off of the sidelines and uh, possibly bend the trend uh, in terms of uh, declining labor force uh, participation. Now, this is not something they completely uh, can uh, fix, but uh, at the margin, they can uh, influence it. Now, now, how do you square the ability uh, to get people off the sidelines, say, if you know, the Fed supports accommodative policy or if uh, Trump enacts fiscal stimulus, with the idea that you know, I've read these articles about one, you know, some of the reasons why you have such a downturn in prime age participation is because maybe the prevalence of drugs, people on pain medication, uh, you know, men in their 20s and 30s playing too many video games. Are, is, is an improving economy enough to reverse trends that are maybe more baked into the economy at this point? 
I think an improving economy is a, a critical part of the picture. Now, uh, opioid addiction and uh, a lot of other factors uh, certainly uh, do extend a toll. But if you're, uh, let's say, for example, you're sitting on your couch uh, playing video games or uh, uh, watching movies uh, and collecting uh, maybe an unemployment check or maybe a welfare check or a disability payment, uh, and suddenly you see your, uh, your, your neighbor across the street is buying a new car or renovating their home or taking a nice vacation, uh, that uh, type of, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, envy uh, coaxes people to say, well, the, the welfare check is uh, good enough, uh, but I'd like to do a little bit better and I'm willing to reenter the labor force. So, you know, in some sense, there are people that uh, will not be able to reenter. Uh, but in a lot of instances, uh, for example, in a dual income household, uh, one parent may be choosing to stay home uh, to oversee child care rather than take a job that that uh, barely pays for uh, the cost of uh, uh, sending their uh, children elsewhere for uh, child care. Now let's talk about the other indicator I was discussing, the the share of full-time workers out of the labor force. You, you can talk all you want about an improving economy, getting people off the sidelines and into the labor force, but if those jobs are not the kinds of full-time, good-paying jobs that Vince was talking about, uh, you know, one criticism we've heard from Trump and 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 also a lot of other economists about the economy in recent years is that a lot of jobs that have been created are actually uh, either part time in services and 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 low paid or they're in the gig economy with the rise of such uh, services as as Uber as we're all well aware. Uh, what's going on with the state of full time and part time work? Are, are there a lot of people? Vince, who who are working part time, who would rather have full time jobs? Um, well, we have seen um, some of uh, the uh, people that are working part time uh, that want a full time job. We have that uh, seen that start to reverse here um, lately. So I think there is some improvement there, um, and I, I a lot of the. Um, a lot of this, too, um, you could probably attribute to uh, a service economy, and um, some people just want to work part-time and not worry about having a uh, work full-time position. I know um, that uh, President Trump has mentioned uh, the cost of child care needing to come down, and um, a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of uh, housewives, if you will, are choosing to stay home rather than uh, than than go seek uh, full time employment. Carl, how do you see this playing out? Are are we going to see more uh, people getting full time jobs, or or is the trend toward more part time work, uh, you know, something that that's just a, a fact of life now? Well, I think we have two trends uh, moving in opposite directions uh, with the uh, advent of the gig economy and TaskRabbit and Uber and all these sorts of things. Uh, the uh, availability of uh, part-time work uh, becomes uh, uh, significantly uh, elevated, uh, so that w that will be a longer-term trend. Uh, but what we watch more closely uh, as economists uh, is uh, part-time work for economic reasons. Uh, so this is not someone who's uh, driving Uber on the weekend for a little 
little extra cash. Uh, but these are workers who uh, can only find part-time employment, uh, although they would prefer full-time employment. Uh, and if we watch that trend, and this is something, uh, again, that uh, Chair Yellen uh, uh, has referenced uh, at the Fed, uh, this is uh, moving in the right direction, but not fully normalized. So uh, in, a, in a very odd sense, uh, Chair Yellen and uh, President Trump uh, are on the same page in uh, questioning uh, the signal from the national unemployment rate. Uh, Chair Yellen, long before President Trump was uh, uh, criticizing the unemployment rate, uh, was making the same point, uh, saying that that is an incomplete measure of uh, conditions in the uh, labor market. And uh, so instead, she looked to these other broader measures, uh, one of which was uh, part-time uh, workers for economic reasons. Yeah, Janet and Donald are probably going to find some uh, common ground the next time you know, when they actually have their first meeting together, despite uh, Mr. Trump's criticism of her during the campaign. Uh, let's move on to another indicator. This one doesn't need much of uh, much deciphering. It's the number of manufacturing workers on payrolls in the economy. A, a lot of Trump's campaign was about how NAFTA and China have killed all these jobs over the last 20 years and, and how he would restore them. Carl, what are the chances that this is going to happen? Well, some of the jobs are are gone and certainly are not coming back. Uh, we are moving, uh, you know, in an increasingly uh, auto, uh, automated uh, assembly lines. Uh, I've been reading recently about some assembly lines where they they don't even turn the uh, overhead lights on until uh, something needs a repair because there are are basically uh, only robots uh, who are happy uh, to work in the uh, uh, in the dark on those assembly lines. So. Uh, to some degree, uh, a lot of the manufacturing jobs that you imagine uh, your, your your father or grandfather working at uh, are probably not coming back. Uh, however, uh, if we are sourcing more production uh, in U.S. factories, there will be an impact on manufacturing jobs. So some jobs will come back. Uh, and the general rule of thumb is that uh, for every uh, one manufacturing job, there's about three service sector jobs that uh, support it, uh, whether it's engineering, design, transportation, uh, finance, etc. cetera. Uh, so even if we bring back some manufacturing jobs, uh, that will have a, uh, a very powerful impact. Now, I hear time and time again, well, the jobs aren't coming back, so what's the, what's the point in uh, pursuing it? There are tremendous economic benefits uh, to manufacturing activity happening on U.S. soil. So, uh, yes, there's a question mark over how many jobs will actually come back, uh, but innovation happens on the shoproom floor. Uh, and so if the vehicles uh, and uh, widgets are being assembled on U.S. soil, uh, then the engineers and the design folks and uh, all of that uh, other uh, uh, higher level uh, sophisticated uh, work uh, tends to happen in close proximity to the factory. So when the factory moves overseas, uh, it's not long until the engineering design and management jobs uh, tend to follow. Uh, and so there's uh, an intangible benefit, uh, much, uh, much more comprehensive than just uh, the actual job count uh, from sourcing production uh, back on U.S. soil. So we're at just over 12 million manufacturing jobs right now. You don't really see that 
moving a whole lot, but it could it could go up. What what are you thinking? I think it could trend higher uh, depending uh, how aggressively uh, President Trump uh, pursues the initiative of sourcing production. And uh, you know we're only a, a few days into the new administration, but based on the uh, tone of the inaugural address and some of the uh, measures uh, he has uh, emphasized uh, early on. Uh, whether it's uh, you know re- restrictions on manufacturers uh, from uh, re-importing partially manufactured goods uh, to uh, uh, trying to uh, pressure pipeline construction to use uh, U.S. Uh, uh, manufactured uh, materials where possible, uh, it seems like it's going to be a very uh, high priority item for the uh, for the new administration. And mind you, uh, you know what we've seen just in these first couple days uh, are uh, already like the beginnings of the uh, re-election campaign for 2020. Uh, President Trump's path to the White House uh, largely uh, went through the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, And if he wants to return to the White House in 2020, uh, he's going to have to uh, perform well in those states and uh, those uh, uh, disenfranchised uh, workers who feel like they've been uh, roadkill on the path to uh, globalization uh, have to feel that they have gotten uh, some kind of benefit out of this administration. All right. Well, let's move on to a broader indicator of corporate America and uh, American business. That would be capital spending. Vince, when we talk about capital spending, what does that refer to and what's been happening with that in the last few years? Um, it's basically uh, spending by companies on like plants and buildings and um, equipment, machinery. And from the last part of 2014 through uh, this last year's uh, third quarter, it's been averaging a, basically a paltry, uh, you know, 0.2 percent um, on average. Um, now, part of this is owed to the slowdown in the oil patch, but not all of it. And, and on the flip side, when, when the uh, energy industry was spending hand over fist at the start of the recovery, investment was spending uh, pretty nicely. Now, um, as for small businesses, um, it's a little difficult to measure, but the uh, National Federation of Independent Business data um, show that uh, until recently, optimism has been uh, fairly tepid, certainly well below the levels uh, leading up to the last recession. And part of that is due to the subdued economic recovery and um, you know, a good deal. A, a good deal of it can probably be attributed to government policies. You know, from you know Obamacare to government regulation. Uh, they've they've actually mentioned that um, in in the surveys that the NFIB does. Um, more recently, however, the uh, the gauge, the NFIB's gauge of optimism, has shot up. Uh, in this last report, but actually by the most since 1980. Now, small businesses are liking what they hear from the Trump administration. They just want less government intrusion and and a clear path to uh, doing business. So obviously it hasn't it's been kind of uh, seen kind of paltry gains uh, in recent years, uh, but optimism is picking up. Carl, is that going to be enough to translate into uh, higher spending that actually boosts GDP? Well, the jury is still out on that question. So uh, absolutely, uh, animal spirits are a critical element of uh, a capitalist uh, system. So uh, if everyone's feeling depressed, 
and uh, uh, salting away their uh, paychecks into savings, uh, that can have uh, dire economic consequences. Uh, since Election Day, we've seen a significant rise in household sentiment, home builder sentiment, small business sentiment, uh, even other broader measures of economic sentiment like the stock market, for example. Uh, however, uh, we haven't seen much hard data yet to support that, and that's because economic data is released with a, uh, a lag. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, vehicle sales were strong at the end of December. Uh, retail activity seemed to end the year on uh, relatively solid footing, so there seems to be some evidence uh, uh, that uh, positive sentiment is uh, actually uh, impacting the economy. But uh, again, it's uh, still very much in the early stages. Let me give you a term, net business births. It sounds kind of odd, but it's just another way of saying the number of businesses that are created in a period uh, minus the number that close. Uh, it's another indicator about uh, of the health of the economy, uh, you know, as we can look at it under President Trump. Vince, why did we pick this one, and what's been happening with that lately? Well, simply because you know new businesses are basically the lifeblood of the economy. I mean, uh, you have a new business created. They're successful. They hire. They get even more successful the more hiring they'll do. Um, after the recession ended in uh, 2009, um, it wasn't until uh, a year later that business births uh, actually exceeded the number of you know firms that went out of business. Um, currently, net births are about where they were during the last expansion, but they're well below the peak that we had in 2005. So I think that a pickup in um, you know company formation will uh, likely depend on how successful you know Trump and Congress are in uh, making it easier for entrepreneurs uh, to do business. And Carl, how important would this be to to drive the economy? Oh, it's absolutely critical. So uh, business uh, births tend to be among uh, small and medium-sized businesses, uh, which account for the vast majority of uh, jobs in the uh, in, in the private sector. Uh, I think roughly uh, 85% are attributed to uh, firms of uh, 500 employees or less. Uh, now, uh, you know, business births and uh, also business investment, so two themes that uh, Vince was uh, hitting on, uh, both tend to be late cycle components of the economy. So early on in cycles, we tend to see uh, growth driven by things like uh, consumer spending and housing. Uh, and then later on in the cycle, with the economy continuing to grow, uh, businesses start to face capacity constraints. And so they invest in the equipment and software and structures uh, that Vince was highlighting. Uh, that also tends to be the stage where we see more uh, formation of businesses as uh, folks are more confident uh, in the overall economic outlook. So the the fact that uh, we're seeing uh, both of those measures uh, kind of only normalizing uh, now or uh, starting to pick up uh, may be some clues that uh, this cycle uh, is going to be unique and that it is going to be much longer uh, than the typical uh, uh, post-World War II or even in the modern era uh, business cycle uh, in, uh, let's say, uh, 1980 to present, if we can call that the modern era. So uh, in Fed terms, that's uh, Volcker, Greenspan, Bernanke, and Yellen. 
uh, business cycles have averaged about uh, 32 quarters. Uh, we're in the 31st quarter of the uh, current cycle. So by that measure, you would say, wow, uh, the next recession can't be too far off. Uh, but when we start to look at underlying fundamentals, like what's driving the economy or uh, where are the late cycle indicators, have they engaged yet? Uh, they're not really there. And so this economy is not as long in the tooth uh, as a, a pure calendar-based measure measurement uh, would otherwise suggest. So, Carl, taking a big step back and thinking about what you just said there and what we've been talking about, what are the chances that President Trump can fulfill his promises to make America great again in the next four years? Well, uh, you know, this is uh, going to be a uh, an economist answer, but it uh, really depends on how you want to measure that. So uh, will GDP growth be stronger? I know you said we can't talk about GDP at the start, uh, but if we are, uh, you know, financing significant tax cuts and infrastructure spending uh, by borrowing more, then that is a, uh, a cheap sugar high uh, that can uh, elevate uh, economic growth uh, until it comes around to actually uh, Actually, paying the bill. So, you know, there could be a short to medium term acceleration in the pace of growth purely for that reason. Uh, the unemployment rate, I'm going to break all the rules. You said we can't <laughs> talk about unemployment. Uh, the unemployment rate is, uh, you know, running below its uh, natural level. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're starting to see increasing evidence of uh, shortages of workers, uh, which will mean workers have greater bargaining power uh, and more wage pressure uh, and, and wage creation as a result. So from that perspective, uh, it's also going to look better. Uh, so, you know, part of uh, the economy or the country feeling greater uh, is just the, uh, you know, the the inevitable result of stretching on uh, and prolonging the recovery from a very severe economic downturn. Uh, on top of that, then the icing on the cake will be things like uh, trade uh, policy, which could favor the Rust Belt states, and uh, tax cuts, which could uh, help uh, certain sectors uh, of the economy. Uh, so uh, in some uh, context, yes, I don't see a recession coming for uh, quite some time. So uh, the, uh, the uh, tone and temperament of the economy will feel significantly better uh, in the next uh, several years, in some part due to the new administration and some part just due to where we stand in the cycle. All right, Carl, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And Vince, thanks. thank you for joining us, too. For more on this, you can actually call up a graphic we put together that you can find on Bloomberg.com called How We'll Know If Trump Is Making America Great Again. And Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, our newly revamped Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, please rate and review the show so more listeners can find us and let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at at Scott Landman. Carl, you are at Reconomics, R-I-C-C-A-N-O-M-I-X. And Vince, you are at double spelled out T Goley in uh, support of my alma mater, Texas Tech University. All right. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.